Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Shadi Bakor, CEO and co-founder of PATH, a sustainability-focused bottled water brand. They have forged the path in refillable packaging revolution with 100% refillable BPA-free aluminum water bottles made here in the U.S. Prior to founding PATH, he was the CEO and co-founder over at Exum, a tech hardware startup that was acquired in 2014. And before that, he worked in consulting and private equity at, at Booz Hamilton and some others. Excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. I am pumped. Selfishly, I drink a lot of PATH. I have a PATH water bottle right here. This is probably at least six or seven years old, it feels like. Well, I've been around the world with me. But I'm excited to dig into the business side of this. Let's do it, man. It's a pleasure to be here. All we could do is hydrate the people. We're trying to get water out there to as many people as possible. Hopefully, some of our scaling and revenue techniques can be applicable to your audience here. I love it. So let's let's get started. Like, how did this all come about? Because when you think about it, yeah, when you think water. There's these there's giant giant companies that are in the kind of in the water bottling space, and obviously a lot of them yeah. are in the plastic space. But like, how did this whole idea just kind of come about and turn into an actual business? It's a good question. Everybody drinks water, right? And that's the beauty of it. But it's also scary to get into a super super crowded space. You know, there's so much competition. There are so many water brands out there. Actually, bottled water is probably the most successful consumer product in the history of mankind. So it's a, it's a big total addressable market, but, but it can be very daunting to go up against a big, a big competitor like that. Our, our beginning was, was very kind of humble, quintessential entrepreneurial journey. We started from scratch. We were driving Uber and working at a restaurant on the weekends for three and a half years not taking a penny out of the business and just working full time on building our dream. And very, very slowly over a period of many years, you know, today we've been in the business for about eight years. So you could call it an eight year overnight success. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, we saw an opportunity early on. We looked at an industry that had been stagnant for the past 40, 50 years. And we just started brainstorming. How can we make a change that's simple? scalable and truly impactful in the world and yeah what we ultimately found was everyone up to this point had changed the liquid inside of the beverage but no one had actually changed the delivery system of how people were consuming water on a day-to-day -day basis and so that's what we set out to do we created path which is the first ever reusable refillable bottled water instead of in a single-use plastic bottle and the rest is history <laughs> How much of the, how much of the business has shifted from like your original idea? Has it always been, hey, let's let's cut out plastic and 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 focus on water? Did you ever get into other types yeah. of drinks or other types of anything else? Yeah, yeah. So it's always been water in a reusable bottle. We changed the name, we changed the brand, we added different products around it. So now we have still alkaline, sparkling, three sparkling flavors. We also sell a bunch of accessories and stuff like that on our website. So it's become more of a, a brand that's grown out of a single product and single concept. But the cool thing about our brand is that there was always a mission behind it. And there was always a reason for the consumer to believe 
And so that, that's been a big kind of torch in our, in our, to light up our journey as we kind of go through that path, pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. All right, well, let's dig into this. So the interesting thing with path is there is a B2C component. So I can go to the store and I can buy a bottle of, of path yep. water, or there's a B2B component, which we can dig into which one, which one came first and how did the first, first part get started? Yeah, so it started B2C for sure, yeah, B2C for sure, just going to the stores directly to retailers because we thought, you know, that's where people would find our product. And this is one of the takeaways that I want to leave for everyone at the end, but we kind of took a very unconventional route to market ultimately, which is the B2B play that no other beverage brand is really doing. And that outside of the box thinking allowed us to tap into a what I call the blue ocean, right? Which is basically a space where you're not competing with anyone on the shelf. Retail is the red ocean, right? It's bloody. You're literally fighting with people in the store to get your product more visible and get more shelf space, stuff like that. And so we found ways to just differentiate ourselves in a big way. And that's been a huge catalyst for our business as well. So let's talk about it right in the beginning. Like what were the first moves you're, you're thinking? All right we're going to take water and we're going to put it in aluminum cans. I would imagine yeah. that there's all kinds of engineering around the type of can and that type of thing. But let's talk yeah. a little bit more for, for this show about the go to market. Like yeah. you said that, Hey, you had this interesting B2B play. Like what, what, what was yeah. the initial go to market and, and what exactly did you do? Yeah. At the beginning we went after kind of the whole food stores because we thought, you know, you figure out your target consumer and then you go after your target consumer. And that's where we thought they were playing the natural foods kinds of stores. But what we found out is that, and what we didn't realize when we made that analysis was that when you go into a whole foods type store, the water aisle is like a football field. It's a hundred yards long. You're the, the brand that's on the bottom left-hand corner of the shelf and you're not getting any eyes on your product you know, ultimately people are going to Whole Foods to buy broccoli, not to buy sustainable bottled water. And so we pivoted our strategy, go to market into 7-Eleven and into convenience stores, which was a completely different segment. But what we found there was that it was an impulse buy and that we could get on the shelf very easily and very quickly. We could go in, make deals with the store owners. And that was a different sales process than selling into the, the natural food stores. In a 7-Eleven, there's one fridge for water and you can really place your shelf eye level, your product eye level on the shelf right next to the handlebar. That's kind of like the strike zone in beverage. So accessibility to the customer for your product in various sales channels, I think can make a big difference. And then it just kind of grew from there and yeah, lots of trials and tribulations, but I think the, the learning lesson from that experience was, you first of all, you don't really, even if you think your target consumer plays somewhere, you don't really know where your product is going to sell best unless you try out different places and actually test it. So there's a little bit of that A-B testing and go-to-market strategy. And then outside of that is, you know, once we grew into a, a brand and a product that was beyond retail and went into the B2B side is... Where can you go that you're, again, not competing with anyone? And that, that turned out to be just a massive value add for, 
for the equity brand value of our business, but also for the top line revenue. Yeah. What what did the team look like in in kind of these early days as far as going? I mean, is this one by yeah. one you went to like Seven Elevens one at a time to, hey, c- c- can we put our water in here until it got you know got some traction? Yes, that's exactly what we did. We were going to the stores, so we went to the natural food stores. The product was just sitting; it wasn't moving. So we're like, shoot, we had twenty thousand bottles of product in a warehouse collecting dust. We didn't know what to do. We decided to go after 7-Eleven, so we drew out a map of every single 7-Eleven in Northern California. 5 a.m., we meet, me and my two partners. We had, at that time, brought on our first, I would say, non-founder sales guy who became our partner in the business and is still with us today. And we together would just crush that map. We would go and hit every single store. There are 227-Elevens in Northern California. And it was difficult between three people, you know, you're loading up 60 cases of water in the back of a beat up Prius with the bumper hanging off. You go to the store, you wait in the parking lot until the store owner shows up because they might not be there when you think they're going to show up. So you literally just stake them out. When they show up, you go in, you make a deal at all costs. If you can't make a deal, what we would do is we would say, here, I'm going to give you a case for free. A lot of times we could make a deal, but in instances where we really just could not get them over the line, like I'm going to give you a case for free, but I'm going to come back one week from now. And if you, and if the product moves, like we know it's going to move, then you, you're going to buy the product the next time we come back. And that's the deal we made with them. And literally the, the market manager for 7-Eleven called us a week later and is like, what is going on? You guys are spreading like a virus. I've never seen anything like this before. And that was really the catalyst for our brand. Then our third guy actually was playing basketball, tore his ACL. He's sitting in bed. So now it's two guys delivering to 227-11s in Northern California. So this guy's sitting in bed. We're like, why don't you start calling on schools? Because we always believed in the model of like kind of Apple, for example, going after schools or Pepsi and Coke going after schools. As cliche as it sounds, you know, the younger generation is the future. They're driving purchasing decisions. And so we just saw that as a huge brand building channel and started going after one school after another. So that was the first, I would say, unconventional channel that we went after. And then that side grew as well. And this is all just you and your friends and your partners who are just figure out how to pick pick a school, look on Google Maps type of thing, circle a radius, figure out a phone number, figure out a person to call and just go oh, get Oh, yeah. It. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, everything is sales, right? Like in life, I kind of, you know, kind of connect everything with sales. You're selling yourself, you're selling your company, you're selling whatever you're trying to persuade someone in. It's all sales, right? So whether it was trying to track down a customer or trying to track down a vendor and supplier or trying to track down an advisor or an investor, we would literally create these massive lists and we would just like literally run reverse background checks and like whatever it took to get that information and just dial for dollars, create a template email, send it out, add a little personalization to it. And I would say 90% of them didn't respond, but 10% of them did. That's how it works. That's how it works. 
That's awesome to see. Is there, so the, the hire that you had, who's not your partner. So the sales guy who's not a founder, what, talk me through that a little bit. Like, is this just a, like a friend where they paid in equity, where they paid in like actual money in the, in the beginning? Like yeah. wh why that specific person and how did that come about? Yeah, I was actually, so one of the things that I believed early on and I still believe to this day, which is another kind of takeaway is to find people to help you. Like you cannot do anything by yourself. I mean, in some rare instances, there, there are exceptions to every rule, but generally we need like two, there's two sources of capital, right? There's capital, money capital, and then there's human capital. And being, I think one of our strengths was being able to bring a group of people around us to support us from a pretty early stage. So I was actually pitching this guy for investment. He was someone that I went to college with. I was trying to get investment and he, I just like met with him so many times and got him so juiced up about the business that he's like, I actually want to join this. And at the time we were nothing. Like when he joined, we literally had negative $400 in our bank account. We were at a, wow. we were at a low point <laughs> and he was for the first two months, he worked without any pay. He just would meet us at 5 a.m. We would hit 7-Elevens. We would go sell. We would just like, you know, and it's exciting early on to, to be able to do those things. Obviously, it's much harder to see the, the big picture when you're just doing like $10,000 in sales and your aspiration is to be a billion dollar business. But everything is one step at a time, right? So one of the big takeaways I, I would also leave to the audience is just talk like a lot of times when people have an idea, they're really scared to share it with other people because they think people will steal it, right? But I actually take the exact opposite approach, which is talk to as, literally as many people as you can. Because at the end of the day, even if your idea, I would say for the most part, again, there are exceptions, but even if your idea is the greatest idea in the world, without the proper execution, it means nothing, right? right. So like bringing people around you to help you grow and scale your business is absolutely critical and building that human capital from an early stage, I think can only accelerate your, your business. Yeah, I, I give a lot of that similar advice. I, I think a lot of people want to hold it close to their chest and the, the amount of work that it takes to actually execute the idea is far beyond what most people are willing to do. And then you got to get through the trials and tribulations of the whole thing. And that's when a lot of people quit. And if it wasn't your idea and you don't have the same passion that you, you know, that the other person did, that's, that's how you succeed as well. So that, that's good advice. Yeah. So you're going to all these 7-Elevens, you're starting to get some headway. 7-Eleven calls you and says, Hey, we want to, we want to do a bigger purchase or like what, what ultimately happened there? No, actually, we went from Northern California. Then we realized one of our com kind of competitors, this guy that was trying to, you know, talk a big game, basically said that they're going, we found out through the grapevine that they're going to launch out of LA. So we're like, fuck these guys. We're going to take over LA before they do. So literally the next day, we packed up our cars, drove down to LA we had a couple of connections there through the Northern California 7-Elevens because everything was on a franchise level. So we weren't doing it on a corporate level. We were going literally 
building relationships with each store owner. And there is an association of all the store owners together. So anyways, next day we went down to LA and we just started building those relationships the same way we did in Northern California. And uh, built a little team down in LA. It was basically our friends or friends of friends that were willing to make minimum wage, like, you know, cash payment. I'm not going to give too many details about how we paid them, but <laughs> like basically we're willing to scrape it out with us. Not necessarily your, you know, 25 years experience, Coke sales rep or something like that. Just people that were willing to, to grind it out. And, uh, you know, I, I think as, as you get to more and more experience, one of the downfalls is that you kind of lose a little bit of that same like hustle and grind and it's very important to us to to maintain that as a as like a cultural core value grit is one of our core values and so that's actually one of my other takeaways is like always do the dirty work like school of hard knocks is one of the best ways to learn and you just have to like sometimes you got to stop thinking about or like planning and just like get into the minutia of like, what can I do today to even try to move the needle forward, you know, 0.1%. So how big was the team? Like, what did the team look like prior to going up to LA? How many people? So it was three of us. Okay. And then you get to LA and you bring it, like, are you still, did you leave people up in Northern California to like continue to service up there while also doing LA? Well, I mean, they say in entrepreneurship, you kind of move fast and break stuff, right? And that we definitely did that a lot early on. So we were delivering in Northern California. We we got like three people in Southern California that were kind of delivering. We bought on a distributor that wasn't delivering 50% of the time. So we just did the best that we could. But frankly, like there were a lot of gaps. There were a lot of stores that are like, I haven't seen you in a month and a half. Like, where are you? You know, and that's, it was just like, but you build that momentum and you kind of like, you can show growth to some extent and you just do literally do what you can and take it day by day. Eventually, we got a whole distribution network of Anheuser-Busch distributors from Northern California all the way down to LA. But again, a lot of these distributors, even though we would send them orders, they were not delivering. It was the stupidest thing. And so we just, like, we would literally sometimes to, to deliver in LA, we would book a flight to LA, fly down, rent a minivan, fill up you know 200 cases in a minivan go deliver them for two days and then fly back and we would do that every couple weeks or something so whatever it takes (laughs) whatever it takes so at what point in time like what's the step after this so you're in la you're in northern california and then you is this when you decide do you you branch out from 7-elevens do you go to the b2b route like at what point in time are you changing Yeah, so you kind of talk about scaling up the operation from a sales standpoint, and that's exactly what we thought to do at that point. Like, okay, we have some good distribution throughout the West Coast, throughout California. You know, we want to build into that more, and we want to have a team to support that. So we went and found a beverage brand that had sold for $1.7 billion 
We found the head sales lady from from that brand in LA and we hired her. She hired 12 people under her in a period of like 30, 45 days. We hired all these people in LA and we thought we we're going to crush it. We had raised a little bit of funding and that was a horrible mistake. And within the next, I would say, 30 to 60 days, we fired that entire team. So it was a massive learning experience, but we weren't ready for it. Our distribution was not set up and running for it. We were spending too much money on payroll too quickly. The person that we had hired had joined a really more established brand that had more, you know, at the time our sales were, we were doing less than $10,000 a month in sales. So we're very aggressive. But again, what worked for us might not work for someone else and vice versa. There's no right or wrong answer in business. There's just what works for you. Yeah. So fired that team and we just kind of kept building. We, we brought on some internal sales reps like more slowly over the next several months. But again, really people that were like willing, like not really experienced people, but more just people that were willing to do the work and and be paid very modestly. Yeah. So was yeah, the main so, reason, like, is it just that you just grew too fast? Like you added too many people to the team? Obviously, a, a person of that caliber with that background probably had a big salary. Adding another 12 people took a lot of salary. I mean, is that, was, was it just a, the payroll to the sales just didn't add up for, and it, it didn't grow fast enough? Or like when you say, hey, that was a big mistake, like what was, can, can you tie it to a specific thing? I think our just our business was not ready for it. Fundamentally, like we didn't have the systems and processes in place to manage and to run a team of that size. You know, like things as little as like having payroll and having, you know, like a, a payroll system, you know, like having just, we just knew that we, the business was not ready for it. Like there was no inventory management system. There was no, like it was just very hand to mouth, guerrilla combat, like we were just figuring it out. We're 23 years old, you know, just, just learning a lot of things. Uh, so maybe if it was a different person that could have worked better with us, it would have worked out better, but it just, there was a, a large disconnect between management and the sales team and, you know, like, yeah, there were just a lot of issues that yeah. just didn't work out. It um, didn't work. But what happened is a year later, we got another round of funding. Then a year later, we went to the largest food and beverage trade show. We had also been approached by the largest food and beverage broker in the nation called Acosta Sales and Marketing. They have 36,000 employees. They represent Coke, Nestle, et cetera, et cetera. And so the next year we launched, we launched with, we went to the largest food and beverage trade show. Trade shows, we absolutely crush it and bring a ton of energy. And it, it's a huge, it's like one of the core things that has helped us grow sales, I would say, is just crushing it at trade shows. And I can talk more about that. Yeah. But we launched with that broker and it was a nationwide launch, they forced us to basically cut out all of our distributors and switch to a different distribution model. And 
And then several months after that, we were able to go back into the market and really hire very experienced people. And, and that just catapulted our sales to a different level. So at that point, we were ready to bring on the right people. They weren't in the streets sales reps, but they were actually more chain, like call on a retail chain sales rep. So it was a different type of sales, I would say. And in those situations, yes, we hired for cultural fit and all that good stuff. But I would say the main thing that we focused on through the interview process was relationships. Like, who do you know? If I call that person right now, what are they going to say about you? And like, like, what is your relationship with them, basically? Like, and, and prove to me that you have these strong relationships in the marketplace. And after hiring them that next year, now this is 2020, we went from about 4,000, 3,000, 4,000 stores to over 25,000 stores in a matter of 12 months. So, you know, that just took us to a different level. All right. I, I wrote a couple of these things down because I want to make sure we get to you. You got some great stuff in here. So when you're, when you, 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 you talk about how these brokers are coming to you, how, how is this happening? You're going to these trade shows. And when you say you're, you, you know, you're killing it over there, what does that mean? You're killing it at the trade shows. These are yeah. for vendors and suppliers, or these are for yeah. buyers or buyers. buyers. Uh, well, well, the show is called Natural Products Expo West. I would say that's the main show. It's the largest food and beverage trade show in the nation. So the first three years of the show, we could not afford a booth. A booth costs about five to 10 grand. But, you know, we had so many other expenses and stuff. We were always kind of catching up. The year that we did, so let me talk about that first. The first three and a half, three years that we did the show, we were walking the show. And I found that to be actually one of the most effective ways to go out and, and network within whichever industry you're in is a lot of these trade shows, you'll have, everyone has their own booth, right? But the problem with being in a booth is that you're stuck behind this table and you can't go anywhere, right? So what we would literally like guerrilla warfare, these trade shows and everyone has a name tag, right? So you can see where they're coming from. And, you know, if they looked like an investor, I would chase after them. If they looked like a retailer, chase after them. So we knew kind of who we wanted to connect with. And the strategy would be, we would see a name tag. Like we might walk by them and eye out their name tag as we're walking by. We would turn around, we would walk up to them and say like, hey, I see that you're walking through the aisle. Can I walk with you a little bit? And just tell you a little bit about my product. And we would just pitch them, take the contact info on to the next one. And we literally did that for the first three years of the show. Then the fourth year, we had raised a good round of funding. So we decided go big or go home. And that's one of our mottos. Like we like to do things that are big, that are outside of the box, that create noise. Because again, there are so many companies and brands at these trade shows that it can be hard to cut through that noise, right? And it's just, it kind of becomes mundane and you're just another item on that list. Um, so we're the first ever official water sponsor of Expo West in 2019. In 40 years of the show, we're the first 
you know, wow. on the largest food and beverage trade show. And that really put us on the map in a huge way. We handed out a lot of products. So we're very generous with our product. Luckily, water, you know, it's something that can be handed out where it's a reasonable expense and you're not, you know, but we're definitely more generous with our product than I would say most other brands that I've seen. We want people to be trying the product. We want them to be carrying it. We want them to be talking about it. I just kind of want to be in their face as much as possible. I told you very early on, we went after schools. So we had gone up to a school food trade show. And, you know, at this, at the school show, you have Domino's, Pepsi, all the big food and beverage companies trying to cater to these schools. We, we actually purchased an inflatable bottle. It's a 30-foot inflatable bottle. That's a path water bottle. And we just inflated this in the middle of the hall and like you could not miss it. Right. <laughs> so just like figuring out ways to like not be quiet and to be really loud, yeah. I think has a lot of benefit. And then we just bring a ton of energy to these shows. We break the rules. We ask for permission or for forgiveness, not for permission, yeah. all that good stuff. <laughs> That's I, I love that. That's so fun. When you, you talk about how you raised a big round, what, what led to that big round? Because you're doing some of these trade shows. At the same time, are you, you're in LA, you're in Northern California. Like, are you still doing this like grind it out one by one by one type of thing? Or have you gotten enough traction to be able to get a distributor to actually deliver your product? Yeah, so it's a good question. No, we were grinding it out for a long time. I mean, wow. we officially started the company in 2015. We created the product in 2016. We had our first trade, you know, the big trade show with Expo West. That was 2019. But it was really until 2020, I would say, when we started to actually switch our distribution and call on chains. And that switched everything for us. It, stopped, it allowed us to stop going door to door and delivering to stores on a very minor scale guerrilla style and just call on a single buyer that can get you into a hundred or a thousand or 5,000 stores. Interesting. So you're doing, you're doing a whole bunch of things. You're delivering, you're obviously doing inventory management. There's a ton of supply chain here, but then you personally are also doing a tremendous amount of fundraising and investors. So what, what does the team look like? When when you're when you're kind of doing this all at the same time, I mean, you're fundraising, you got your events, you got your distribution, you know, you're trying to sell yeah. to new accounts. Yeah. So at the beginning, it was a lot of like literally our friends that would just do the work and again get paid either minimum wage or get paid, you know, like after their actual payday is actually scheduled, like they were very flexible with us and and you know we 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 made them whole in the end but you know th those are the trials and tribulations and that's kind of the journey then the team evolved so it was like you know it fluctuated honestly like we started with two people three four six then we hired a bunch of people we were like 20 then we fired a bunch of people we went back to like eight then it went up slowly, you know, to to 20 again over time. And then, so, you know, there was always that, that kind of fluctuation. And yeah, I mean, I'm very lucky that I had co-founders and just, and partners that were able to take a lot of the weight off in terms of 
sales, marketing, operations, finance, stuff like that. Because to your point, a lot of my time has been largely spent on fundraising. And we have hundreds of investors today, which is also very non-traditional, I would say. But in the, in the spirit of doing what we had to do, like that's, that's what we had to do to, to fund yeah. the business. And, and so we did it. <laughs> there you go. I need, I need to meet some of these friends. I bet a lot of our listeners are going to be like, where do you find these people who work, you know, for free or delayed payment? Type <laughs> <of thing?" laughs> um, so let's, let's talk about this a little bit more. So before you hit this, like this kind of like whoosh type of thing where you go from, you know, a, a small to a, to a large number of stores, where is the B2B sector? So you start calling on some franchises. So then you start to have some distribution that way. Where does the B2B play come into the B2C play in addition? So it happened actually August of 2019, I would, I would point to, is when San Francisco International Airport banned the sale of single-use plastic bottles in the airport. And so for us to get into the airport, this is another fun sales story. We could not get through security check to go talk to the retailers, to the distributors. So we would book a flight on Expedia. Expedia has 24-hour free cancellation. We would go through security, cancel the flight, and every single day for about four or five months going up to the ban, we were in there, in their faces, selling the product. Hey, we're a local company. This is what we're about. We're you know eco-friendly. We we fit within the ban of single-use plastic bottles and went in and replaced about 5 million plastic bottles in one of the largest international hubs in the world. Now, what happened is that that became a huge catalyst for our company because, you know, so many people flying through San Francisco airport, one of them was an executive at Salesforce. And so they reached out to us and said, hey, we love your product. Can you throw a Salesforce logo on it? And going back to what I was saying earlier about just being unconventional, doing things that are against the grain. One of the things that they tell you in a consumer packaged good or a consumer product, especially in beverage, is your brand equity is so important. Like you want to you wanna protect that at all costs. And so we gave Salesforce this tiny little space on the back of the bottle and said, you can have that. And we argued with them over it and, and went to battle. But through that experience, through that process of making that custom bottle for them, what we realized is that what if we actually create a program where we're collaborating with different organizations and providing them with a different service of not only giving them sustainable bottled water, but allowing it to be this marketing opportunity for these organizations to bring that sustainability halo to them in a way that is cost, you know, cost effective, et cetera, et cetera. So we found this opportunity kind of fell up, like stumbled upon it. And then it just started to grow like crazy. And uh, there are a lot of reasons why it's not advisable to do a, a strategy like that. Again, you're giving up some of your brand equity. But for us, yeah. what we saw is actually that it's an opportunity for us to lean on the brand equity of another brand. You know, what we did is we still kept our brand and our name and our logo very prominently shown on the bottle. So by collaborating with like-minded organizations, giving them a sense of ownership in our product, 
it's not a private label it's a co-brand it's a collaboration that just opened the doors for us to this entirely new sales channel that no other beverage brand has access to like for example we're selling in all aloe yoga stores nationwide we're selling in you know orange theory fitness berry's boot camp equinox when you're selling a beverage like you're not thinking of going toward you're thinking of going to 7-eleven whole foods target etc right because that's the traditional go-to-market but the beauty again of us going after aloe yoga is that we have an exclusive relationship with them and they're not selling any other water on the shelf there if you want a bottle of water you're getting a path water right yeah. so yeah that's uh, that's really interesting because it, it's yeah to your point you're jumping kind of on their marketing coattails you're associated with the brand they're doing a lot of the work for you but there's still the sustainability piece and then people carrying like all their employees or that they're reselling it carrying around that's free marketing or free advertising for you guys as well what what right. did the team look like like when you hit that moment like obviously it, it was kind of an inbound wasn't really pro- wasn't really planning on going this direction or at least initially i mean this, this almost looks like a completely like hey were you thinking about saying hey let's switch this entire thing or hey you have b2b you have b2c we can run both at the same time obviously a, a lot of that is money but like how did you actually figure out how to you know actually execute because there's a lot of moving pieces with all of that yeah i mean Basically, it was just a factor at that point. You know, we didn't think about scaling. Like, we didn't think too far ahead of it. We just thought Salesforce wants a bottle, and that's awesome. Like, we should do that. But our team at the time was maybe nine people. Again, a lot of just, like, lower-level kind of doing the dirty work type of team members. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting question. I guess we, we just, like did a lot of stuff like we just tried as many things as we could and and what worked worked and what didn't didn't now like we're scaling that program it's bringing a lot of new considerations to light about like what is the pricing what is our minimum order quantities like what customers are we going to be working with do we work with everyone do we only you know so but at the beginning it was just like hey you know if we can work with these brands and get into them it's not only a great sales opportunity, it's a great marketing opportunity for us. It gives a lot of visibility around our product and our brand. And ultimately, we, we thought of it full circle where if someone is working at Salesforce, they see our bottle there, they drink it, then they go to Whole Foods at night, they're buying you know whatever groceries and they see our product on the shelf, then that's another impression or another moment where they're interacting with the product. So we feel that that will only increase our sales and come for full circle. So at what point in time, so, so you mentioned Whole Foods, at what point in time did you go back into Whole Foods? Is that when you hit the little bigger deal as far as distribution goes? No, it took us until 2021. We got a regional test with Whole Foods. Usually with a regional test, it's about a year. And then they'll reset. If you do well, they'll you know bring you national. We did so well that they brought us in within four months on a national scale. So they bring us us in what's called off reset, which is like outside of their normal schedule. They're just like, we got to get this in. So it was awesome. 
But again, like some of our sales guys had pre-existing relationships with Whole Foods that we were able to bring in. So that always helps a lot. So when what? So when you were nine nine people, and then all of a sudden you started to hit this scale of, I mean, you're, it sounds like you're getting inbound inbound inquiries. Products seem to be selling really well off the shelves, both in both in retail, and then you're getting some things from like the B two B channels. At what point in time are you are you fundraising this whole time to go? Hey, we're going to spend all this money on hiring pretty expensive people, and we're going to essentially buy their networks and buy their relationships so that they can go sell us into, you know, whether it's a whole foods or whether it's into a, you know, some type of other type of, you know, B2B play. Yeah. It's interesting. And I want to get to your question, but I'm going to answer it a little indirectly. Like the way that we were, I mean, I think something that was really were one of our strengths early on is that we were able to really sell people on the bigger picture of the business, of where it's headed, of what the opportunity is. So like even at the beginning, our first sales guy that I mentioned that that joined us, he ended up investing. He ended up joining full time. And then he did a deal where he, he also received equity vested over time, but he was being paid $0 in cash at the time. Not, none of us were making any money. And then even early on, as we brought on kind of our friends, it was always like we were naive. It's not like we were lying to them or anything, but we were always telling them like, you know, we're going to like look at the future of like what this could be and what your role could be within the organization. Like you can, you know, you can really scale with this business and you can become rich and all that good stuff. Right. And so, and there is that opportunity, right? If someone steps up to the plate and they're crushing it for you, there's no reason like you'll reward those people that are doing well for you. But even those experienced people that left Nestle, Fiji, major, major brands to join our team, we were still able to sell them on the dream. And I've got to say, like now looking in hindsight, they've done very well for themselves because they've crushed it for us. But like we sold them on like, okay, this is where we are today. But if we take the business from this to this, which we think is what's going to happen, then there's a lot of money to be made more than even what you're making currently out of your 20 years of of building business. So I think it's really important to, you know, it's, it's good to have like a mission based product, you know, all of that good stuff, I think helped in the story because there's some like emotional part of it, but it's really selling your team on yourself as leadership on the company and on the potential, frankly, to make money because especially sales guys like, or sales people, I should say, you want to make money, right? Like you want to make, and and they should, you know. Yeah. You you eat what you kill, as they say. They yes, I'm very very well aware of that. <laughs> when you when you look at how you start to form this, I mean, are you like are, wh- where are you getting really really nervous? I mean, is there a time when you're like, ah, you know, I don't know if this is gonna work, right? I mean, you. When you, when you have any kind of physical product, you have to put a lot of money into the product itself and you got to prepay before you actually get any of the money. Like there's, there's a whole risk there. And then, I mean, you're, you got, you got a whole group of people who are working for free. You got distributors, you got all these people who are, you know, sales forces coming in and saying, Hey, we should do something like there's a lot of money going out with the expectation that the money comes back. Like, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah. 
have a lot of gray hairs to show for it and I'm 31 years old. We put a lot of years on ourselves and a lot of scar tissue to show for it, but it's yeah, there honestly there were times where we sat on the curb with our hands in our face like what are we going to do? Like th- is this worth it because I could go get a finance job right now and be making, you know, good money and not dealing with this level of stress. And I think that's why you know, people at the top of their organizations get paid more is not because only what they can produce, but it's also what they can take in terms of like liability and stress and just responsibility. It definitely, it definitely piles on. But ultimately, we just kind of, I mean, my motto is always, if I give something my 110%, then even if I fail, like I started from the bottom, like I know I'm still going to be happy with with nothing. So like as long as I, I'm putting everything into it, if I'm not putting my whole heart and soul into it, that's when I feel like I would have regret. So it's just like continuing to charge forward every single day and yeah. you don't necessarily see the light at the end of the tunnel. You know, we turned down at one point a $7 million investor, one of the top people in the food and beverage industry, the largest acquisition, you know, in, in a certain category. And, and it was a very difficult decision to make, you know, but the guy was a shark and everything, you know, blessings in disguise. Like we went through a dry streak of not raising any capital. We were freaking out. We, you know, we didn't know what was wrong. We went back, looked at what we were doing wrong, tried to change our, our, you know, proposal our pitch our approach went back out and the next week raised five million dollars like from some of the biggest celebrities in the world and just crazy crazy things so it's just like you you i think in business overall and, and in sales and across the business like there are different ceilings that you break through a ceiling and then you're like "Woo, i made it and then there's another ceiling that hits, right? And you just keep breaking through ceilings. And every time it's like you go up a little bit and then you face another challenge. And there's always another mountain to climb. Always, always, always. When when you look back, is there one or two kind of pivotal moments that if you had to change or do again or do differently, you would? It's easy um, once you, you know, you've already done it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the answer is no, because I don't have any regrets. And I think everything is a learning lesson, even if it's in a very expensive one. But reality, like maybe there's one thing if I went back, I would have done differently, which is at the very beginning, we actually had co-founders and one of them didn't make it with us. But what we didn't do is we didn't invest equity over time. So that person walked away doing, you know, much less work than we had to get a very healthy chunk of equity early on. We kind of, you know, we're 22 years old when we started. Let's just split it, split it up, you know, and you have, you have three shares, three shares, three shares, three shares, you know, right. and then a year and a half in, we're like, okay, this guy is coming in at 11 a.m. He leaves at 2 p.m. He's like getting lunch in between, like his business working out. Right. But, but there was nothing that we could do about the equity. That, so, yeah. investing equity over time 
It's something that LegalZoom.com doesn't teach you, <laughs> which is where we filed our business originally. But vesting equity over time is a very powerful tool and something that should definitely be utilized. Yes, I agree. I 100% agree. When you look on the flip side of that and you look at the business and the growth pattern that it's been under, is there one or two things that you can point to that you're like, that was it? Like, that's the bet we made. I was right. We busted our tail to do it maybe, but like, is there a bet or two that you made that you're like, if I had to do it again, definitely doing these two things? I mean, I would say the two things was probably like that come to mind from a sales standpoint is probably number one, going after 7-Eleven was a decision that took a few, I'd say a few weeks. But the reason that we went after it was because we saw that we could access the buyers which was the franchisee store owners. And so going after them and shifting from a, from natural food stores to, to that buyer was definitely a good move. Even, even if the revenue wasn't like anything crazy, but it just, it's something that we could talk about and say, like, we could go to an investor, for example, and say like, look, we're in all of these stores, go to this Seven Eleven, and you'll find a product on the shelf. That's number one. Number two, I would say is working with, the largest food and beverage broker, even though we were kind of approached by them, we, we, we kind of seeded those conversations ourselves. So it was a combination of us seeking them out and them reaching out to us. And so like working with the best of the best sometimes gives you this X factor of like access and accessibility, I would say to certain customers that even number two or number three would not have. And and that was a huge catalyst for us as well. So those are the two things that come to mind off the top yeah. of my head. No, that's that's good. I mean, and, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, on that subject, I mean, you have what do you have? Ryan Seacrest, you got Kevin Hart, you got a couple of these big name, you know, celebrities who Travis are investors. Scott. You're 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 selling water. How how are you getting introduced to these types <laughs> of people in order to invest? Is it just they, they bought into your overall vision, but like, are you getting intros? Like, are you figuring yeah. out where Kevin Hart's show is and standing outside, you know, his locker room or his dressing room type of thing? But like, how, how does yeah, something no. like that step up to get that A player type that you're talking about? Yeah, it was always through just meeting someone that knew someone that knew someone that knew someone. There are a lot of celebrities that we've talked to that haven't invested and then there's some that have. Kevin Hart was an interesting one because his, well, it's usually their wealth manager that you connect with. And so his wealth manager, who's become a very close friend, has reached out to me on LinkedIn. But like, you know, we have the number one basketball player of all time. I won't say his name. Ryan Seacrest. Some of these others that invested. That was just through like, again, their wealth manager. So it was just, I always lead with, you know, it's cool that we have a brand that people can get behind that is exciting, that talks about sustainability, mission-based, that definitely lends to it. Being in consumer space, I think, is an exciting space to be in because of those types of things. Like, it's a tangible product that you can actually see and hold. And then I always just honestly lead with passion, lead with kindness. I know it's like something in business that is becoming more, I would say more and more rare is, you know, people think that you kind of have to be like a hard ass and you have to like 
show a certain level of strength, I would say, or, or masculinity, or I don't know, you know, how, how you might describe it, but I, I found that just always leading with kindness, building relationships, and kind of good things have just kind of come full yeah. circle. Put, put out good into the world and good will return. I like that. Yeah. When you when you think about the team as as kind of you're going through this, so all of a sudden B2B starts to take off. I would imagine that there's more people, there's there's sales forces, but then obviously all the various other companies. How, did, have you split up? So you have a B2C arm and you have a B2B arm. Do you have do you have like a GM of each place? Or are you just running it all? Like how? How is that kind yeah. of you, that that team or or that part of the company evolved? Yeah, so essentially our sales guy that joined the team, that original guy, was employee number four, and then like three, four, and then the, the uh, there was another guy that joined us who was employee number five. He also invested a little, maybe six months after that, and joined the team full time. Compensation as well. So what happened is the original guy became our president of sales, and the second guy became our VP of sales, and they split it. So one was able to look over all retail, and one was able to look over all B two B essentially, and and then they built teams under them to to manage those divisions. Actually, our VP of sales actually started on the marketing side, and he was the director of marketing. And he just wasn't, we just, he just wasn't producing results. And so I thought it was like a genius move of ours at the time. We were like, we're going to move you into a sales role. Like we think you'll crush it at sales. And so he was very open-minded to that. A lot of times, you know, ego can get away in the way of those decisions, but we just explained to him and brought him over to the sales side. And then he just became we call him the Black Panther, but he's just like a, he's a driving force within that side of our business. Yeah. So he's been a huge, huge value add. And are they both still there today? Yep. That's pretty powerful. So along this entire yeah. journey, your core, most of your core foundational team still exists. I mean, that that's pretty powerful to, to say that from the very beginning, sales has from a from a lift perspective yes it's obviously on you as the ceo but also you've had these two people to really help you i mean a lot of it is yeah. so much of a sales game in the beginning but that's impressive absolutely absolutely i always say sales can solve for everything if you have sales you'll get the investment you'll get the marketing you'll get the operations like sales is a a fundamental critical piece of any business when you when you think about the growth of the business today, specifically on the kind of the go to market sales, marketing, even operations side, is there a hire or two hires or maybe even a department that you would look at today and say, we should have made that hire earlier or we made the wrong hire. We didn't need that. Like, is there is there a, a hiring place where you're like this catalog, catalog like catalyzed the business or it was just kind of a money suck? Yeah. Yeah, you talk about like a lot of our core team from the beginning, but the truth is there are a lot of people throughout that journey that came in and left. And so, you know, the the true ones stayed with us, the, you know, that wanted to 
grind it out, but we've been through a lot together. And, you know, even when, even when the business grew to much larger size, like there were days where it was, you know, I would say even way more stressful than early days. Why so? Because the business, when it gets bigger, like at the, at the beginning, like if you want to make payroll, for example, like you're only paying yourself so you can miss payroll. That's fine. Right. When the business gets bigger then it, like in early on, it was our friends. And a lot of times we maybe couldn't hit payroll. So we would, you know, we would just tell them like, I'll pay you in two weeks or whatever it is. And they would, you know, they would work with us. But when you get bigger and bigger and you're working with, you know, the people from all of these big brands that left their jobs making, you know, hundred, two hundred, $300,000 a year, you know, pulling major weight, like that have families and, you know, a mortgage and stuff like that. Like you cannot mess around with that. And so you're now responsible for all of these people. And then your business, as it gets bigger, any small change will have a much larger effect, right? If you bump up pricing 10% early on, it's not going to be that big of a deal. But if you bump it up when you're a $100 million business, then all these customers are asking why you're changing pricing and this and that, right? So it just kind of exacerbates every situation. That makes sense. Now, that's good insight. I mean, it, it's interesting how, how much the business has grown and how how you know, the, the different roles that you have essentially as still the top, top person in the company, but all the different things that you've had to, to, to go through. When, when you, when you look back on the way that this has been going, would you change anything or is this exactly what, exactly what you wanted? It's not what I expected, but I'm having the time of my life right now. You know, I never thought I would be working with Travis Scott and all these people and, you know, all these relationships and brand Inc. 5000, fantasy brand, beverage brand in the U.S. I mean, like, I hope, you know, you hope for the best, obviously. Yeah. And not everything is flowers and rainbows as it looks on the outside. You know, every day there's still a lot of tribulations. Like I said, there's always another mountain to it's high stress, high stakes. Beverage category has very low margin. It took me five years to look up on Google worst margin industries. <laughs> There's a Forbes list of top 10 worst margin industries. Beverage is number three on that list. So I would also say for, for people scaling business, like find those margin opportunities. I've become much more sensitive to margin these days than when I started the business. But yeah, I mean, it's I'm I'm having a blast. I wake up every day excited and just super awesome. passionate about what we're doing. So I I feel very blessed. That's amazing. So tell me, how many people are you guys? Where can you buy pass? Companies you work with, partners you work with, that type of thing. So we're available in almost sixty thousand stores today: Whole Foods, Sprouts, CVS, Rite Aid, Target, Costco, Walmart. You know pretty much every major retailer in the US. You can also find us with a lot of our partners. So I mentioned some of them earlier. We're in all state farm offices. We're in, we work with SpaceX. We work, you know, if you go to Chanel, 
and you buy a, a nice little purse or something, ask for a bottle of water, you'll get a path of water. So you'll see us out there. We partner with a lot of different quick serve restaurants, a lot of different fashion, you know, fashion retailers like Free People, for example. So we're everywhere, man. Just just keep an eye out for it. us. We're in a lot of airports, etc. I love it. I love it. I wanna I wanna wrap up here, but I got I got a last question. Favorite book or resource article, something that you recommend to the audience for their kind of uh, journey that they're going through as far as building their own company or, or building their own brand. Yeah, I'll give you two really quick ones. Number one, I became kind of maniacal about Tony Robbins growing, like going through this business, just not only from a personal standpoint, but I was looking for someone that could help me hack productivity and like, how do I show up as vibrant as possible every single day? So the first $4,000 I, I made, I took my family of seven to Tony Robbins. And like, that was my listen every single day on the way to work. From a sales standpoint, I would say one of the big ones for me was actually, I read Grant Cardone's Closers Survival Guide. And he just gives you all of these different closes that you can try out on people. And, uh, and so... You know, ultimately, like sales is an art, but like having that toolbox of all of these different literally things that you could say, it's a very tactical book, I think was like huge, huge help for me. And then just honestly, there's so many resources out there and it's becoming maniacal about getting information, downloading it, whether it's an audio book, a video, whatever it is, like that's been massively important for me. And I, I try to very intentionally you know, insert that into my daily schedule of like, I need to be growing at all times. So awesome. I love it. I'm, I got to check this out more. Um, how does the audience get a hold of you more? LinkedIn, Twitter, blog, just go to drinkpathwater.com. What, what's the easiest? Yeah. I mean, our website is drinkpathwater.com. Our Instagram is pathwater on IG. My personal Instagram is Shadi Bakur. It's just my name. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Shadi Bakur as well. Shadi, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. I have a mountain of notes that I've already selfishly gotten to learn from. So thank you so much for <laughs> awesome. sharing the story. I, Thanks for having uh, I can't, me. I, I can't wait to see what happens next. And I continue to plug you guys because I, I got all of them. I got all the colors. Let's um, go. I think it's awesome. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate Ali. it. We will have you on again next time. Talk to you later. Thanks. Absolutely. Okay. See ya. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.